How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Welcome everyone uh, to the third uh, webinar of Global Digital Cultures on Public uh, Digital Infrastructures. And of course, especially a warm welcome uh, to the three speakers of today, uh, Seda Gerses, uh, Jack Cho and uh, Geert-Jan Bogaerts. I'm, uh, I'm Thomas Poel, one of the coordinators of the Global Digital Cultures Initiative and also the chair of, uh, of this session. So um, I think the, the current move to online education uh, during this time of pandemic has made this call uh, only more urgent. So in this webinar, we will reflect on why this dependence on commercial platforms is problematic in the first place, and uh, especially also what alternatives are currently being developed and how viable they are and what kind of support they also need. So Seda uh, Gerses will uh, kick off the session uh, Seda is Associate Professor of, um, uh, at the TU Delft, and she works, among others, on software infrastructures, social justice, and political economy. And she's also voiced one of the most, I think, most powerful and eloquent critiques of the current move to uh, uh, online education in a webinar uh, in which she talks about what happens to university when, uh, when it went online. So I've asked Seda to kick off and talk about the dependence on commercial platforms like Zoom and why that's problematic. So Seda, the floor is yours and I think you wanna share indeed a slide, thanks. Okay, so um, what I did do actually, first of all, thank you Thomas for organizing this event and wonderful series, um, very timely given the topic. Um, so what I did do after some talk with Thomas about you know, what would be a good, good points to make this, this afternoon is I went and revisited the talk that I did in April for Artez, which I have to thank Nishan Shah, who I, I think was very insightful to see some of the problems we'd be facing um, in the coming months, looking back then and looking now um, in the past months and in the coming months as well. So the talk was called Rectangles Are Us. It was about the rectangulization of all of education um, through interfaces like that of Zoom. Um, and there are many points that um, I tried to raise. It's a bit of an intense video if you do end up watching it. Um, I will pull out two of them today, which I hope will help us frame the discussion uh, and open some further points uh, to think along for the future of the university. Um, the first issue that I want to bring up is that when we pick tools and infrastructures for our university, and this also holds for other organizations, but we're talking about the university, um, we're extending currently, especially when we buy software like Zoom and Microsoft Teams, business cloud services that were not originally made for educational purposes to educational institutions with serious implications for educational and institutional culture. To remember um, what is important here is that Zoom was actually made for businesses to enable efficient work conditions. And this is also reflected not only um, in, in the kind of seamlessness that they promise to have, but also in the surveillance structures and the kind of hierarchies that are built into the features. So what you see here is um, an actionable meeting room analytics, if your eyes are that good, um, which actually allows you to see who has attended and who has participated or basically try to evaluate the efficiency of meetings. It's also possible uh, with Zoom to 
take control of somebody's device, um, which you know has been introduced again by cloud services as a way to support users, which is also interesting to see in contrast to let's say in the 1980s where the personal computer was seen as the personal thing where you could imagine and explore yourself to now it being a device which is there to just deliver services and that can be actually fully controlled by those services. And Zoom is exemplary. Um, of the kind of functionality that implements this shift in ideology from personal computers to devices that are there to manage our lives and manage us maybe at the same time. So what kind of educational cultural issues uh, come up? There's a whole host of things to discuss, but I would say that the two things happen. One is the ethical and political questions surrounding the university change, but they also change hands. So what I mean by that is now, not only is the university's own, let's say, integrity and co code of conducts are, um, let's say, regulating or governing um, our interactions in research and education, but also the terms of service of these cloud services. Again, we have to remind ourselves these services were not made for education, so the terms of services are very much in the business interests. So that means that we are subjecting ourselves to, let's say, content moderation standards of uh, gaming platforms like Discord, which also has been the meeting spot for white supremacists, um, Zoom bombs, which I don't have to explain hopefully much, but attacks that can be done on Zoom where people have put graphic images into PhD thesis defenses. Uh, and most recently, as of today, Zoom actually canceled a, uh, um, the use, the, the possibility to use Zoom for a lecture at San Francisco State University because they thought that the speaker did not match their terms of service. Um, so here we're seeing that not only are we shifting the ethical and political questions, but who gets to answer them changes hands. So these are the kind of decisions we make when we decide to buy a license of, of companies like Zoom. So that's the first point I wanna make. The second point I want to make is about the economics of it all. I think there, I think, um, Oh, there's so much to be said about the, uh, the dominance of the economics logic ever since COVID-19, right? Like public health um, decisions and individual liberties continuously get weighed up against some amorphous notion of economics. And I think what we're seeing is that this economics is not just abstract, but actually comes to bear upon the university every time we take one of these services um, as a fundamental service of the university. So let's look at Zoom. So. Um, I made some changes, so this is the fun part about going back to a uh, presentation. Um, these are changes that happened on the one hand um, because Zoom corrected its public announcement. So it used to say they had 300 million users and they said actually it's 300 daily meeting participants. And here we see even the number of users being a metric. And so these are the metrics that now the university has to also kind of contend with. Um, and they're scaling up with cloud computing. So they're buying a lot of AWS, but other services, maybe their own, which means that they're burning money. So that's really interesting for thinking about how we can create alternatives because an important part of how a company like Zoom succeeds is by giving free licenses, for example, for students. And the way they can do that is to burn VC money, right? And you know, public institutions do not have VC money to burn. Uh, and we can talk about why we have VCs with so much money to begin with. The valuation of Zoom has gone, um, it was 29 times back in April, 60 times of their revenue um, of the past year, which means that they are now officially part of an economic bubble, which means that either they have to deliver to, the, to their investors or they might go down, both of those with potential impact on the university. So um, the university has to contend with all of these economic issues. I know I'm running out of time. So um, let me just, 
try to ask a few questions maybe for the discussion. Can I have one more minute, Thomas? You tell me if I've gone over time. Please go ahead. Okay, so, um, so what we have seen with COVID-19 is a fast forward. So this is nothing new. What I say about Zoom or Microsoft is nothing new. It's just a fast forward of a business interest of taking different existing common infrastructures onto digital infrastructures, right? And, um, and the fast forward has meant that they have made immense amounts of revenue while we're, the rest of the economy is experiencing a sort of downturn. Um, so that means that we now have cloud companies or big tech as they are called, not all of them are cloud, and other tech companies who have an interest in keeping the university online. They have benefited from the conditions of the pandemic and they have an interest in keeping things as is. And the more we deploy them in our universities, we are subject to that interest. It's also important to think that universities are economic agents themselves. Um, now universities have had a test run on where they can cost, cut costs and we have seen, especially in the UK and in the US where universities have leveraged debt to grow, uh, really shedding personnel with significant impact on teaching and research quality. Um, and they have also spent much money on tech through licenses. So they've already, trans universities have already transformed their economics with, the co with COVID-19. There is great worry about tuition from local and international students. And in fact, what again we're seeing in the UK and the US is pushing students onto campuses, even though it's a public health danger. Um, and we actually have protests from uh, both students and professors coming in as well. Um, and what we also see in the process is academic work looking like gig work. Honestly, I don't know what is the difference anymore between the work I do and a gig worker, except that I do have a pretty delicious uh, salary in comparison to being paid for each piece. Um, but I think it's interesting to see the fact that faculty and IT staff are doing things that would take immense amounts of labor and work and all that cost being externalized to extra hours, etc. Um, and I think there's some big discussion to be had about what is the future of that. If there is an economic downturn, um, as is kind of currently ex expected, this will also impact the public funding of the university. So we really need to think about these shifts in the economy of the university um, with respect to what can public institutions and public budgets do to preserve the university or transform it in the right way? Um, and I think we need to think about that long-term impact as well. So there's a big question here, um, could going online um, help the university to become a new and interesting public uh, education institution or disrupt it in a way that we would not like to see? There's a lot more to be said, but I'll stop there. Thank you. Great, thank you. So this was an amazing summary of a much longer uh, webinar which you gave um, earlier this year, uh, which is now in the, uh, in the chat. So just one question before we move to Jack. Um, so you talked about the ways in which sort of the code of conduct is now being determined by or set by uh, the global platform, in this case, Zoom. And you then pulled up a couple of these sort of, um, yeah, extraordinary cases, these kind of scandal cases. But I was wondering whether you can talk a little bit about the ways in which Zoom and maybe some of these other platforms are sort of shaping everyday practices in, in education. Because obviously, if this is going to be long term, I guess they'll be able to figure out the ways to, uh, well, uh, stop Zoom bombing and, um, you know, some of these other extreme things. But the reality, the everyday reality remains that we're actually doing this through these kinds of uh, environment. So what does that mean and what are the consequences? Yeah, I think um, I mean, there's a lot to be said about that, including uh, the fact that, you know, one of our friends in EdTech said, 
my LinkedIn network has turned overnight to all people doing ed tech. You know, all mm -hmm. software companies said we're doing ed tech because it was mm -hmm. like a moment to grab money uh, and to enter the university and other, other educational institutions that I'm not as well informed on. Um, and I think it's really important to think that no technology can exist without the support. And that's, mm. you know, that's one of the central points is who mm. does the IT support? Who does the labor uh, of making that software work and run? And, and I think it's really important to think that if we shift to a global company like Zoom, mm. we can imagine that our IT support is probably a call center with underpaid mm. labor and with a kind of checklist of standards that they have to apply to all users across uh, many countries versus you know, the IT support that we might have um, at the university right now. Um, which, you know, um, are a, they're not subject to the working conditions of startups, which is, you know, as somewhat high pressure, um, agile, you know, precarious work mm -hmm. conditions, they are longer term employees, and they might not even have adopted adapted to the transformations that are happening in technology. So what we see here, here's an example of how things change, is that on the one hand, we are being getting getting used to IT support being super precarious uh, and um, exploitative labor serving these global companies, um, standing against an IT support which is understaffed, maybe not ready for the situation and under pressure to perform the kind of seamlessness that we have, while we're continuously being subject to terms of services that are completely in contradiction to our educational culture. So I think those are the kind of tension points there's a lot more, of course. Yeah, let's uh, let's get to that later. All right, let's uh, turn to our next uh, speaker, uh, Jack uh, Cho. Thank you for being here, Jack. Um, so, uh, who is a professor at the National University of uh, Singapore, uh, previously worked at the University of Hong Kong, um, and he's the author of a really an excellent book, urgent book, uh, uh, Goodbye, I Slave. Uh, but he's also done a lot of work on commons-based uh, co-ops. In this session, uh, Jack will talk about a commons-based uh, uh, platform alternative he has been involved in in Hong Kong. So, Jack, please go ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas, and uh, thanks everyone for uh, coming. I, and it's a great pleasure okay, to be part of this uh, webinar uh, with uh, some uh, familiar faces from uh, Amsterdam, and also uh, uh, to see uh, Seta again. Okay, actually, uh, last time I was with her, we were together. That was uh, six years ago in New York for a workshop called Infrastructures of Empire. Okay, no, nobody could uh, predict, you know, six years later. Okay, we keep talking about infrastructure, but that empire has changed into Zoom. So I'm going to mostly talk about, okay, uh, 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 platform co-op, uh, you know, in Hong Kong, but let me just uh, make the transition to use uh, Zoom. So this is the uh, uh, CEO and the founder of uh, Zoom, Eric Yuan. So you could tell from the name, he's Chinese. He grew up in China, but uh, did his uh, educa uh, higher education and uh, started the company okay, in Silicon Valley. Okay, this was the moment, okay, when the uh, corporation went uh, public the, uh, the IPO uh, last year uh, but actually there are in, in addition to the global okay trajectory of uh, corporate to uh, education sector transformation okay and for for the zoom uh, which is a global story that uh, holds true 
Uh, I would like to add uh, notes okay, to what said I just said. Actually, in Greater China, okay, we you know uh, uh, like uh, Thomas mentioned, I am I, I am a, a, a scholar activist. Okay, I do things within and outside the ivory tower. So uh, you know I have actually been using Zoom for uh, three or four years. So long before the coronavirus uh, outbreak, okay, the uh, the Zoom's uh, platform started to operate, I think, eight years ago. Okay? But then it was the, it's probably the only uh, uh, you know uh, uh, platform that would be uh, helpful for people like me who are in Hong Kong, but we communicate, we hold labor study and youth activism, uh, you know, education NGO education uh, sessions long before the coronavirus outbreak using Zoom, right? So there, there were possibility, okay, in addition to the company's uh, own drive to make more money, okay, including from the education sector. Uh, small users like myself, I consider myself a, a small potato. We can still use the same tool for other purposes, okay, including uh, activism, okay, nonprofit. Uh, uh, in this case, the training of labor and uh, youth activists, you know, in mainland China, but from Hong Kong or uh, Taiwan and uh, overseas. Uh, the the reason is because many other platforms they were uh, either within China's Great Firewall, okay, and then they will be censored. Or, or outside, like uh, 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 Google products would actually be um, uh, blocked in mainland China. Okay. So uh, one thing uh, uh, also, uh, uh, you know, uh, when, when this kind of platform has started to uh, perform a public uh, digital infrastructure function. So one thing, for example, so this, this was in early June, okay, June 4th was the time, okay, to memorize the Tiananmen tragedy. Okay, uh, that happened on June 4th, 1989. So these were activists, not my, my group, but other, okay, humanitarian China, okay, and uh, activists in Hong Kong, okay, when they're having Zoom meetings, okay, some of them were in the US, their Zoom account were, uh, you know, um, deleted. Okay, so it's not the first time, okay, within the, uh, the, the example that I mentioned about uh, San Francisco State University, is uh, just the latest addition for a long list of corporate and political censorship. Okay, and of course, after this, there was a major uproar, okay, especially uh, Zoom also uh, directed some of its traffic from the US to China, okay, where uh, Eric Yuan originally came from. Okay, so there were, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, threats, okay, for uh, Trump to, uh, you know, uh, to ban Zoom or limit Zoom. Okay, so Zoom had to very quickly to allow activists, okay, and, uh, you know, to use the platform for, uh, uh, for things that China, uh, Beijing may or may not approve, okay, but at the same time promise we will never direct, okay, American data to China, okay, I don't know whether that's true, okay, for, for European data now, right, so I hope it's true. So this is just to, uh, uh, to show that uh, uh, even though the empire of infrastructure, okay, in this case, Zoom, can be seemingly invisible, but then the old users like myself, small potato, okay, but could create, uh, you know, some window, okay, to, to highlight, okay, the uh, 
the immorality, okay, the uh, problems in the system. While uh, in this case, geopolitical struggle between Washington DC and Beijing can magnify. Okay, so there are uh, uh, empire, uh, you know, would, would rise, but they also fall. Okay, because of sometimes small potatoes coming together, sometimes uh, intercapitalist, okay, em empire struggle. So uh, with this, I, I would, um, lead us to uh, the case of uh, Hong Kong. Okay, this audience probably does not need, uh, you know, me belaboring what happened in Hong Kong. There's lots of political turmoil, okay, and the pan-democracy movement was being uh, uh, suppressed since uh, more than a year ago, okay, starting uh, from, uh, 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 especially from June last year. So the, uh, in Ju July and August, many, of the pro-democracy activists, but also just average, okay, uh, office lady, okay, uh, lawyers, bankers, teachers, okay, who, sub, who expressed support, who joined the movement, were facing uh, uh, punishments by their employers, okay, some of them including airline pilots, okay, or uh, 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 high school teachers were laid off because they expressed uh, views that are politically incorrect seen from the perspective of the authorities. So this is a, uh, this, uh, a small logo here is to, when people were being laid off due to their political okay, uh, 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 commitments okay, or their uh, political opinion, okay, and then they try, uh, they try to create a circular economy among the activists. Okay, in this case, okay, the uh, pro-democracy activists. And uh, there are many experiments. I just want to highlight one, okay, which is called Sunshang uh, Jie, uh, okay, SSK, right? And uh, on the left-hand side, you see the logo of this uh, platform co-op. So it essentially it's a cooperative, but people come together online as well as offline, okay? And, uh, and uh, um, uh, to, uh, there, there's internal democratic, uh, in the process, but at the same time, okay, uh, it, it's trying to create job opportunities for people who lost jobs because of the uh, political crackdown. Right? So the, uh, uh, the, this, this is Hong Kong's Lion Mountain. Okay? It's a, one of the sim popular symbols for resistance okay, in Hong Kong. And, um, um, and, uh, and basically, this, these are the three basic okay, principles, okay, according to the movement. I, I was embedded in this movement for uh, nearly a year from the very beginning until I left Hong Kong uh, recently. So the first one is uh, basically, uh, this is basically the uh, co cooperative principle about one member, one vote. So everyone has stake, okay, and uh, autonomous decision making by the membership, okay, not by other, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, political or economic, uh, you know, powers that, um, uh, that might be. And then the second one is no monopoly, only equal opportunity platform. Okay, this is uh, another, uh, it's emphasizing equality. Okay, and then multiple voices can be heard. Uh, multiple professions, uh, you know, uh, can come together. And this is what we call open co-op. So basically the uh, the uh, SSK, okay, this uh, platform is an infrastructure for different kind of startups, okay, that can draw uh, monetary, but uh, is, uh, but also uh, more importantly, non-monetary, 
okay, uh, expertise, social capital from this platform to start new business, to create value that will be, uh, you know, a, a circular economy, uh, going back to the movement itself to make it uh, sustainable. And finally, consolidate resources to support startups by Hong Kongers. Right? So this is the, the uh, basic principle. What kind of project has been uh, incubated? Okay, first is uh, college students. Okay, they are, uh, these are youngsters who, uh, who, who figure out there's a niche market. Okay, in Hong Kong, most young people have never put their hands on a traditional camera. They've only used the digital camera or mobile phone. But then there are many old, uh, you know, film-based okay, analog okay, uh, 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 cameras. Okay, so this, this, they, they started this uh, project called Yatgun, and mostly they're, they're actually using Instagram as the way to communicate, to do their marketing. So this is one of the projects they, they have already recovered the investment from the platform. Uh, the second one is about rice, and they, they, put the, uh, they import rice from Thailand, but then again, these are activists, youth activists, who, uh, who sell rice, okay, to every, and then they are sold on different online platforms. So these are online shopping platforms. So, so you can see the new infrastructure can foster different type of uh, business, but uh, based on this uh, uh, platform co-op model. Okay, and uh, by the way, th this is not only in Hong Kong. Okay, I'm, I'm very sure in the Netherlands, there are people taking in uh, you know, taking part in this platform co-op global movement. Okay, so this is a, a class that I helped taught in, this was the last class I taught in Hong Kong, right? Uh, uh, it's about how to start your own uh, co uh, platform co-op using digital uh, uh, media. So the, the, the uh, conclusion again is that uh, 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 to find alternatives, okay, from the uh, uh, from the uh, empire like uh, Zoom is not only possible, but also there are multiple solutions. Okay, wherever we are, we, uh, you know, we can always find uh, places to start this kind of alternative ways to, uh, uh, for our digital, uh, public digital infrastructure futures. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Um... So I think, yeah, just uh, to, uh, uh, to make the transition to the next uh, speaker. So what I, uh, uh, what I liked a lot about Jack's talk is uh, that he emphasized actually that uh, how we look at these commercial platforms depends very much on the particular context of which uh, we're talking from, right? So uh, if we're talking about Dutch education and the use of, uh, of commercial platforms, it's obviously a different question and when we're talking about uh, activists in Hong Kong who might indeed be uh, depending very much also on these commercial platforms. And that's, I think, has been voiced uh, over and over again by activists around the globe. It's nice, and, and, uh, it's nice to be critical of these platforms, but sometimes they're uh, quite critical in terms of, um, uh, of uh, particular activities which are done under very difficult circumstances. All right, so now we'll uh, turn to uh, the third uh, speaker of today, um, which is uh, Geert-Jan Bogaert. He's head of uh, digital media at the VPRO and initiator of uh, public spaces, which aims to uh, accelerate the development of an alternative software ecosystem. And Geert-Jan uh, has been uh, one of its main proponents and spokespeople, and he can uh, talk uh, uh, very uh, enthusiastically about the initiative. 
uh, and he will reflect on his potential as a public digital infrastructure and also uh, hopefully a little bit on sort of the obstacles uh, which he has encountered when trying to develop this. Uh, so Geert-Jan, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much for having me. It's really interesting to hear these talks and I also hear a lot of um, consistency between uh, the speakers and what they've been studying and, and working on and also what we've been doing at Public Spaces. Um, just uh, by way of introduction, Public Spaces is a, a coalition um, of some 20 uh, parties in the cultural sphere in Holland, in the Netherlands. Uh, it's public broadcasters. It's also uh, a number of festivals. It's, uh, uh, they are inst institutions in the sphere of uh, cultural heritage. Um, all in all, we have a combined reach of about 75% of the total Dutch population. So we're talking about uh, approximately 11 or 12 million people um, that our institutions are able to reach. And that's, I think, what um, uh, enables us to, to really have an impact on uh, the digital infrastructure and the ecosystem uh, that we've been using. Um, in the basis, what, what, what brings this coalition together is a shared dilemma, if you will. And the shared dilemma is, is, the, is the fact that also, I think, educational institutions face the, either the legal need or the need because of their mission to reach a large audience or to, to, to provide a certain service or product. Um, and in, 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 uh, in that sense, being dependent on uh, commercial platforms to provide that service, uh, simply because most of these institutions feel that uh, the open source alternatives that are available are not yet uh, mature enough, uh, uh, are lacking in basic features, and simply not fit to, uh, to present this, um, this, this alternative. Um, we feel that um, uh, we are, as public institutions, we are being way too dependent on these commercial platforms. Uh, and I'm referring to an analogue that uh, our colleague Jose van Dijk uh, has made, which is that of a tree that has its roots and has uh, branches and is alive. And uh, she likens our digital infrastructure to this tree. But the roots are mainly being for a large part being provided by commercial platforms, such as Facebook, um, such as Google, anyway, the big five. Uh, also, we, uh, as public media, for instance, or as public institutions, we are dependent on the kind of um, uh, nurturing that comes out of these roots. So that's a really strategically, but also ethically, uh, dubious proposition. And that's why we feel we need to work uh, uh, towards uh, sustaining uh, alternatives. Um, we aim as a coalition also to work with the open source community because we feel a lot is happening right there. Um, and what this open source community is missing is not a lack of competence or it's not a lack of experience, it's a lack of reach. Uh, very often uh, their efforts uh, are a bit in crowd. They are uh, reaching only a relatively small amount of people. Uh, great things are being developed there, but they simply don't have the kind of uh, outreach that, that we as public institutions can provide them. So we feel that by bringing this all together, by, by uh, getting our audiences and, and getting them acquainted with, acquainted with these uh, alternatives, we can really make a difference there. Uh, I would like to give you some concrete examples of what we are working on. 
Um, for instance, a lot of people are now uh, authenticating uh, or also or getting authorization to use a certain kind of service by using a Facebook or a Google login system. Um, we think that's really that should be part of a public in infrastructure. Uh, as, 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 as a government institution or as a public or civic uh, uh, society, um, we should not make people having to go to Google or to Facebook or needing to have an account there in order to be able to use our services. So one of the things that we are trying to promote is a public authentication system that uh, stays away from the commercial platform. Another one, I think that's um, uh, also um, pertinent to, uh, especially what SEDA has been talking, talking about, uh, I think is our research into what we are calling blended or hybrid events, where you can uh, um, uh, use online and offline technology and techniques to, um, uh, to bring that to the kind of event organization that, that you know, uh, also happens a lot within education. So if you're thinking about uh, doing uh, seminars or webinars uh, and uh, providing some kind of hybrid form uh, which combines live and also online uh, media, how can you bring that together? And what kind of, uh, what kind of software would be needed to, to really make that fly? What are the kind of requirements that would, that would entail? So we're kind of researching that and we're uh, looking now for funding to, um, uh, uh, well, to, 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 make this, to make this happen, to, to develop the software ourselves if it's not being made available by the software community. Uh, a third example I would like to point out is what we call proof of provenance. Uh, proof of provenance would be like a certificate that would be uh, that could be put on any kind of online content and that would uh, provide a, a proof of uh, uh, the distribution chain through which this piece of content would come to the uh, to the final audience so um, it would uh, unequivocally uh, establish who the original author of that content is and also what happened in the distribution chain during that content uh, what kind of uh, changes have we made to it? Uh, and a final example I'd like to point out is uh, um, we're all looking very much, I also noticed uh, Shedda's lectures are on YouTube. We're looking very much at, um, uh, at, at alternatives for YouTube. That's my Siri watch uh, uh, interfering. So I'm very much, um, we are very much looking into, for instance, Peertube or other uh, uh, non-commercial uh, video sharing platforms that would use um, uh, Tor-like uh, uh, technology to, to, uh, um, uh, to make video sharing possible. Um, a final point I would like to make is that uh, apart from this research and deployment of uh, open source alternatives, we also have our work cut out in terms of influencing policy and policymaking. Uh, so we're talking with politicians, we're talking with uh, civ uh, civil servants, uh, we are uh, also trying to raise public awareness. Um, and I think uh, very importantly, we're also trying to establish a European platform because we feel that uh, this job that we're facing, you know, is, is way too big for just one country, especially a small country like the Netherlands. We really need to uh, face this on a European uh, uh, level. And um, I think that dovetails quite nicely with also the, the, the ambitions of the European Commission uh, that has stated that we need to establish a European uh, digital uh, um, uh, market. 
Uh, and we'd like very much to broaden that concept. It's not just a digital market, it's also a digital culture and a digital ecosystem. Uh, and that's what we're focusing on. So we're now working with parties like BBC, um, like the University of Munich, like ORF, like Europeana, which uh, organizes uh, a lot of uh, European cultural institutions. Um, it's been a really interesting ride so far, but we are looking forward to, well, um, working with you guys as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So yes, so this is uh, this is really inspiring. Um, so my immediate question for you would be: so from from what we've been talking about, especially also in relation to uh, Zoom and to uh, video sharing platforms, is that the commercial platforms are successful because they're backed by a lot of venture capital, right? So then then they're able to sort of burn capital for quite a few years without actually making any profit, but then being to able, to, able to offer these services on scale. So the question I would have is, do you think it is actually feasible to offer a like a video conferencing uh, service, which you've been talking about, sort of this blending learning in a blended learning environment, uh, as well as like a video sharing uh, uh, service through a public uh, infrastructure like you're developing right now? I think I can, you know, you could approach that question from two different perspectives. Uh, the, the first perspective is that of uh, a lot of the success of these companies um, has been dependent also upon the support of public institutions. Um, let's take Twitter, for example. Uh, Twitter only really took off in Europe after the BBC promoted it while with, you know, some kind of uh, talent show uh, where people could vote uh, using Twitter. So uh, there is uh, some uh, history that, that, in, you know, that, that kind of points to the role public institutions can play in that. And the second uh, perspective that I could you know, take this from is uh, the strength of the open source community. Um, I think there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of very uh, well-motivated and uh, very experienced uh, software developers um, that have um, a world, some kind of open source culture that's really strong, that has brought us Linux, that has brought us Apache, that has brought us um, uh, um, uh, Wikipedia, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we can build on that. So um, again, I think the main feature lacking in that open source culture is market reach. And that's what we can provide. Okay, so before we turn to questions from uh, the audience, I would like to give uh, maybe the three of you the opportunity to respond to each other. If you have any like urgent questions or remarks on each other's talks, please, this would be a good moment. Seda? I think I'm okay to take, because of the time, uh, oh, yes. 15 minutes left. I, I just, you know, I think You're it's right. nice to hear okay. from the audience. Yeah. Yes, yeah. great, okay. Can I, can I take one minute, okay? Yes, please, uh, responding, Follow up on uh, Gert Jens, uh, you know, sharing about uh, possibility for future, okay? And, uh, and also uh, responding to, uh, Thomas, you know, idea about this venture capital backing. Okay? Mm -hmm. I think that is both the strength and the weakness of today's, you know, uh, Zoom-like, okay, uh, digital media empires because they have to keep on burning, okay, uh, money without making m many of these uh, do not make a re uh, sufficient uh, return for the investors. Okay, so that dependence on burning money rather than on genuine. Okay, economic models, uh, 
Uh, okay, I, I think that's kind of, uh, at any moment. Okay, if the investors find another concept, okay, that is more sexy than uh, education tech, they they're going to pull the plug. Okay, and at any moment, okay, the, the it could be you know the uh, the big boss. Okay, the we are talking about empire. Okay, of infrastructure, the the emperor or the or the empress may run away, and that could actually leave a major vacuum. Okay, for people, for universities, for public players, local governments. Okay, who are ready to fill in. Okay, that's uh, that that space, and that happened in the automobile. In the iron and steel, in, you know, factories of China before. Yeah. So the same thing may repeat. Yeah. That sounds encouraging, uh, Geert Jan. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's turn to the questions from the audience. So fortunately, there are quite a few questions which are addressed to the entire panel. Uh, the first one is especially, I think, for Seda and Jack. Uh, from Marike de Goede, who is one of the co-organizers of um, Global Digital Cultures. And she asks, could the panelists discuss whether there are parallels between the theme of infrastructures of empire, the workshop of six years uh, ago, and current developments with these types of digital meetings or teaching infrastructures? So maybe Seda first and then Jack. I was hoping Jack would take it first. Okay, uh, let's see. I mean, I think um, that was an amazing event organized by Miriam Arak. I'm assuming people know her because I believe she studied at UVA yeah. uh, and Paula Chakravarti. And I think they're really pioneers in this field. And I think we're very lucky to have them already six years ago thinking about these issues. And I think um, what's really interesting to see, which we're not really touching on here, is the way in which technology and empires playing out for example, China versus the US, which was already evident in the event that we had there um, in the sense of uh, what kind of, um, you know, if you look at all the battles going around anywhere from 5G to the chips and, and the design of those chips, and I'm going lower than the services that we're ha having, um, I think those were already addressed and tackled um, yeah. in the time. I think what we are seeing now is the massive fast forward that I think we did not we expected we would have more time and we could organize more resistance with that time. So I would say that's maybe the main difference. Yeah. And Jack? Yes, I would also agree. Uh, like Sarah said, you know, the, uh, I think when we talk about infrastructure, okay, infrastructure is different from content, okay, from the immaterial okay, uh, uh, cultures that we study. It actually has a, a very important materiality to it. And, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, playing out, especially at the geopolitical level. I remember six years ago, it was not too long after Arab Spring. Okay, so the, the geopolitical epicenter, okay, was in MENA, Middle East, North Africa. Okay, and, uh, but then now we still have this geopolitics, so that's the parallel, but the epicenter seemed to have shifted to a trans-Pacific, okay, the US-China, okay, uh, rivalry and uh, intercapitalist uh, struggle. So that's, the, uh, uh, that's a constant theme from six years ago to now, but the epicenter would have shifted. Another uh, uh, continuity, I would say, is the shift okay, from public sector to private, the power. Okay, like uh, Seda already said it uh, uh, so, so clearly within the uh, Zoom uh, example. Okay, so the uh, and but then this shifts become so quick. Okay, like she just said, in part is because of the crisis. Okay, you, you you guys probably heard the expression, catastrophe capitalism. 
Mm-hmm. So without the, uh, the uh, 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 global financial crisis 10 years ago, there would not have been such a rapid rise, okay? No matter what we talk about the uh, 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 military industrial complex or the financial, the VC, okay, going in, okay? So that was the background. And at the same time, the hollowing out of the public sector, the austerity, okay, came out from that crisis was very much uh, the, the, uh, one of the accelerators for this public to, trans- uh, to private, okay, trans- transfer of power which today, okay, is not the global financial crisis, is the uh, uh, coronavirus. Okay, so I think in that way, okay, we see continuities in the, in the different time series, but with uh, quite uh, a lot of parallel, yes. Great, so thanks for these, these uh, historical reflections, uh, both. So uh, we have a question uh, from Misha Kafka, one of our colleagues here at the University of Amsterdam who uh, uh, is specifically asking a question to Geert Jan. Um, and that has a lot to do with sort of the, the danger of commercialization. So she points out that initially uh, both Facebook and uh, Google started as service providers like uh, in search of a, of a business model, uh, which is, uh, I think it's been quite extensively documented that initially they really didn't know how to make money of the services they were offering. Um, so the, the capitalist, she points out, the capitalist aspect came after the infrastructural development. So then, of course, that immediately uh, sort of triggers the question, so how to prevent the current public platforms from then also at some point adopting a, uh, a business model when they become very, very uh, successful? Um, so is there in public spaces, for example, uh, an obstacle against such, such development? Um, well, at the moment there isn't, because public spaces is a, a, a loose coalition uh, bound by a manifesto. Um, uh, there's not a legally binding contract or any such thing. Uh, however, we do have a tradition, uh, especially in Europe, I believe, of providing public services um, uh, funded by public money, but uh, organized in a semi-private way. That I'm, I mean to say that, for instance, if you look at the way public broadcasters are organized in the Netherlands, um, we work under our own statutes. So we are autonomous and uh, we have certain kind of legal obligations that we have to fulfill in order to get the money. Um, and I think that, um, for example, the work the BBC is doing uh, in terms of uh, public digital, you know, setting up a public digital infrastructure um, is also under the same kind of statute. So we're envisioning um, a kind of, um, you know, organizational and legal model uh, that would provide for public funding, but that would bind, um, you know, the, 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 the organizing entity uh, to certain kinds of, uh, of laws uh, that, you know, it, it could, pro- pro- for example, it could prohibit them from making any profit or it would um, uh, force them to reinvest any kind of profit back into uh, into the service, so I think there's some precedent there that we can that we can draw upon. Yeah, yeah, it seems really important given that some of these initiatives have started very much as open source initiatives, but then suddenly certain proprietary parts were added to them. Like Canvas, for example, is, is an example. I'm not quite sure. I, I don't believe that either Google or Facebook started out as open source. 
No, that's true. You're right. You're right. You're right. No, but I'm especially thinking about sort of some of these open source initiatives, which are then commercialized at some point. Yeah, well, um, uh, I think uh, generally open source has remained open source. And the, most of the times the, the business model uh, that's being built upon open source uh, software has been like in, in the form of service providers like Red Hat providing services on top of Linux. Yeah. Um, and there are more examples like that, but the, the basic software is still open for anybody to adjust. Yeah, great. Okay, so now I have a question uh, for all three speakers, which seems quite urgent and uh, central to what we've been discussing. So Alex Gecker, also a colleague of mine, asks, um, could the speakers address the notion of local and small-scale organization, federalization, and a distributed organization? And it seems so important to me because uh, a lot of the problems we've been uh, pointing out uh, are a lot to do with sort of the global nature of these platforms, right? Which are trying to set standards uh, for users across the globe, which obviously is in tension with a lot of the sort of local cultures and national cultures, uh, uh, which they're serving. So to what extent do you see uh, uh, an opportunity need for federalization? To what extent is it important that we develop platforms which are operating either at a national level, even local level, or potentially European level, or is that already creating some tension uh, with the local? Um, or is there really a need to scale up and, uh, and offer these things uh, uh, globally? Um, for public spaces, I think federation is, is a, a really important um, um, uh, part of, of our approach. And that's to do with the fact that we feel that the risks um, uh, in building uh, platforms and infrastructure uh, is, is for a large part due to uh, tendency to centralize and especially to centralize data. Um, so if you can do away or, or, or avoid, uh, you know, having all data in one central database, but instead working with localized or federated data uh, that are shared among many different uh, instances, um, then you kind of build in a, a technological uh, obstacle to uh, power grabbing or to uh, any kind of, you know, capitalist tendency that might, you know, in spite of what I just said, might still occur. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Seda? Yeah, I, honestly, like, I think the computational infrastructures we have has very much built on the idea of decentralization. I mean, it goes back all the way to, um, you know, Barad and, and the internet being decentralized and then building, if you look at the service architectures, they are distributed. I don't know if they're federated, right? Like, that's another thing. Um, and I think what actually we see with computational infrastructures, and I emphasize a computational, is that the interest is not as much on the data as much as it is about computation, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm referring to with anywhere from the cloud infrastructures to devices that we carry on our hands. And we can see this in the trends of big companies. They don't mind federated machine learning, right? They don't mind, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, edge computing, et cetera, is going in this direction. So I think um, what I actually do see is that a sort of folding in of social problems to logistical problems, mm -hmm. If companies successfully do that, it doesn't matter if it's federated or centralized and they can start um, commodifying it. And, and by logistics, very, very simply, it's basically being able to turn a complex problem into a supply and uh, demand, let's say, and I'm not trying to talk about economics, but just 
saying that there's a supply of something for which there's a demand, start quantifying that and optimize from there. Uh, and you know, it's very much logistic, logistical in the sense of logistics is very decentralized. And at the same time, it's the hand, in the hand of a few companies. So there's really some parallels there, which I think just focusing on the centralized versus federated idea might not get us to grasping how we should come out of this logistical logic as a solution to all of our complex social problems. All right. Uh, I think the global to local dynamic uh, and, uh, is really crucial okay, when we talk about the long-term struggle uh, against okay, these uh, tech giants, uh, no matter uh, American or Chinese. But we, my thinking about this uh, uh, federation, I think it can be a useful idea when we talk about resistance. Mm -hmm. To resist mm -hmm. Google or, or, or uh, Zoom, if people from around the world, you know, uh, political, so I talk about political resistance, okay? We want to show solidarity with, uh, you know, uh, San Francisco State University, you know, uh, mm -hmm. activists. We have a one day, okay, global action. Okay, resistance uh, uh, federation would be uh, useful. But when we talk about creating something new, okay, there, then we need to be much uh, an economic, okay, rebuilding of, uh, uh, of uh, alternative digital infrastructure, then probably we, we have to avoid a one size fit all. The most important, okay, uh, way to uh, defeat the empire is to have many viable communities. And uh, so I think that's the, that, that's, the, that's the crucial thing, you know, and, uh, and actually in our discussion of the commons, okay, movement, we actually have a term now called cosmolocalism, designed globally, but owned locally and operating local, locally. And then at some level, okay, if you want to have an exchange system, okay, for our uh, values, okay, uh, we, we can have a, a global, you know, exchange for time coupon or similar, especially based on, uh, you know, uh, second generation blockchain, okay, uh, Ethereum, okay, there, there, I think that's a promising field uh, being developed by many groups around the world. We need a global standard so that we can, we can trade with each other, not to have a one, you know, gigantic federation. So that's something I'm, I'm actually against to have a to have an economic rebuild okay, of our digital public infra infrastructure future. They should be owned separately. You know, so when you talk about federation or confederation, okay, there is sometimes they are too centralized. So for so my answer are two parts. First, to resist politically, we need federation. We need solidarity globally. Okay, act as one. You know, but to rebuild, you know, economically in the long term. We need decentralization, uh, uh, more grassroots driven. Thank you. So that's very well put. Uh, unfortunately, I have to end the session and there are many more questions which we can't get to. So we're collecting these questions. And of course, this is uh, uh, for us the start really of a longer trajectory of research on these questions uh, on uh, global public uh, uh, infrastructure. And uh, let me just, well, first of thank uh, all three speakers. Unfortunately, Geert-Jan had already to leave, but uh, Seda and Jack, we're still here. Thank you very much for your, uh, both your presentations and excellent responses to all of the questions. So I, I learned a lot and had a lot of new ideas. So that's, uh, I guess that's the purpose also of these, uh, of these kinds of events. 
What else? So let me see. We're going to uh, develop this further, as I said. So I think that's, uh, that's about it for today. So thank you very much for attending, everyone, and for your questions. And uh, hope to see you uh, soon again. Thank you.